As usual, I will start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa, and please feel free to join into this recitation. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato This morning, we started to practice Vipassana meditation, switching from Metta meditation, which we have been practicing for one week. And so I was briefly mentioning sati, or mindfulness, saying how important a quality or mental factor it is. And so tonight, I want to talk about sati, mindfulness. And I will try to point out what sati means in the context of the Buddha's teaching, and especially in the practice of Vipassana meditation. So sati, mindfulness, is one of the many qualities or one of the many mental factors we need to develop. Just to give you an example of other factors that also need to be developed. Factors, qualities such as virya, effort, or sada, confidence, faith, or panya, wisdom, understanding, or kanti, patience, also samadhi, one-pointedness, or concentration. But as I already said in the morning, sati is especially important in this practice. And as Munindra has put it so nicely, saying, when mindfulness is there, all the beautiful qualities are nearby. And Sayadaw O Indaka, one of my Burmese teachers, he has written a book about the Bojangas, the factors of awakening, or factors of enlightenment. And there he compares sati, mindfulness, to the surgeon who carries out the surgery. Of course, for a surgery, not only a surgeon <coughs> is needed, but also assisting doctors, nurses, technical assistants, the person who does the anesthetic, and so on. So even if all the other persons were there, but not the surgeon, then the surgery 
could, ne could not take place. And likewise, in this whole process of walking this path to liberation, sati, mindfulness, needs to be present. It plays a key role in the development of our heart and mind. So the Buddha mentioned different groups of mental factors. As I just mentioned, there are the bojangas, the seven factors of awakening, and sati is one of them. Or he mentioned the indriyas, the five mental faculties. One of them is sati. Or sati is also part of the pala, the mental powers. And sati is also one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. So for people being new to the Buddha's teaching, it can be quite confusing of hearing of the nine of this and the three of them and the seven of this and the uh, eleven of that. So pick a confusion. What is what? Or where does this mental factor belong to? At the time of the Buddha, there was a monk who had taken up uh, ordination, taken up the robes, and then he realized that there were so many rules he had to follow, and he had such a hard time to remember them. And he got very distressed, very frustrated, to the point that he wanted to leave the order, this robe go back to lay life. And so the Buddha came to know about him. And so he said, you know, you know, don't need to be distressed. Can you remember just one thing? And the monk said, yes, one thing I can remember. And the Buddha told him, just be mindful. Remember to be mindful. So when we talk about mindfulness, we must be a bit careful because nowadays mindfulness has become quite mainstream. Almost everybody talks about mindfulness. You know, there are a vast number of mindfulness courses, innumerable articles on mindfulness and related topics. And just for fun, I was going on Google and searched for mindfulness. Can you imagine 40,200,000 entries for mindfulness? So you probably know the MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Then there is MBCT, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. Also MBRP, Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention. <laughs> Some years ago, I had a meditator in a retreat in Switzerland. 
and she told me that for a living she was cleaning people's houses and flats. And can you imagine, she told me, there were even courses of how to clean mindfully <laughs> that she had attended in Switzerland. I mean, better than not doing the cleaning mindfully. So one can engage in mindfulness training also here, 32 million entries found in Google. Urban mindfulness, mindfulness to manage stress, and so on, you know, the list is almost endless. But we want to have a look at the um, role mindfulness plays in the context of the Buddha's teaching. And I think one aspect or mm, yeah, one aspect when you talk about mindfulness is to become very clear how it differs from samadhi, from concentration, one pointedness. <coughs> so that we know what sati is and what it is not so to distinguish it from other mental factors. Samadhi, one of the many mental factors, is concentration or tranquility, one-pointedness of mind. And the very strong forms of samadhi are referred to as the jhanas, the absorptions. And so this state of samadhi, when the mind is one-pointedly concentrated and therefore tranquil and calm, so then in that state everything else is cut out. So the mind is completely absorbed into the object that one has chosen. And this complete absorption in the object results in tranquility, in calmness, also in peacefulness. Um, can also be uh, blissful, almost ecstatic blissful. And this state of mind, we refer to as samadhi, can be compared to the still flame of a candle in a room where all the windows are shut, so where there is no draught. So the, the flame of the candle is completely still. It doesn't flicker. It doesn't move. And that's the um, highly concentrated mind. Of course, this is a very nice state, but because it is so nice, one can also easily get attached to this nice uh, concentrated state. And if one is able to easily access deep states of concentration, they can also be used as an escape from a restless mind, or to escape 
the mind which is overcome with problems or worries and fears. So one can temporarily escape from the from these distressing, painful states of mind, but they will not be eradicated through the state of samadhi. They will come back again when one comes out of samadhi. And as the Buddha was pointing out, this state of samadhi alone does not lead to wisdom, does not lead to in the insights into the true nature of things. And even the deepest absorptions or the highest states of samadhi, they are still mundane. Samadhi can suppress the defilements temporarily, but samadhi alone has no power to uproot them. To give you an example of this very seductive state of deep samadhi, it has happened to Achan Mahabhuva, a very famous Thai monk, meditation master, who was renowned for his ability to attain jhanas and deep states of concentration. And in his biography, um, he was quoted as saying, I was so skilled in my samadhi that the mind was as unshakable as slab of rock. Soon I became addicted to the total peace and tranquility of that samadhi state. So much that my meditation practice remained stuck at that level of samadhi for five full years. <coughs> so one has to be careful about the seduction of deep states of samadhi and not getting stuck there on that level. But of course, Samadhi is a helpful uh, quality and one needed on the path to developing wisdom. We cannot do without Samadhi. This must be very clear. The Buddha's instructions on how to practice Vipassana meditation are found in the famous discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. Long time, the standard translation was foundations of mindfulness, but then some people pointed out that it should be rather uh, fields of awareness, fields of mindfulness, or abidings of mindfulness, as Joseph Goldstein has suggested, whatever. And I will come back to these foundations of mindfulness. 
in that discourse, when the Buddha was describing on how we should practice, repeatedly it is said one should set up mindfulness before oneself. Or, as Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated it in his translations of the suttas, and like a monk doing this and that, and established mindfulness in front of him. And I always was wondering, what does it, what does it mean to establish mindfulness in front of me? Or to set up mindfulness before me? How to do that? How can I do that? So this was all always a puzzle, a riddle. Then when I went to Burma and after I had learned Burmese and also listening to Burmese Dhamma talks, then very often I heard the expression that's how they translate it into Burmese to establish mindfulness before oneself. So this means with a mind led by mindfulness. So like mindfulness is the leader of the mind, of the many mental factors which are also present. And then it was like, Oh, this is how I can understand it. And then it started to make sense. So now we want to try to catch the meaning of sati or mindfulness. At the time of the Buddha, this word sati simply meant to remember. But the Buddha didn't use it in the context of to remember something from the past, like what I have eaten for lunch or where I had spent my uh, last holidays. But the Buddha then used it as to remember to be present or be to be aware of the arising phenomena in body and mind. And again here, um, the way the Burmese uh, translate this word, I mean sati is a word that is very often used in Burmese language, but if a Burmese word for sati is used, it's mamemelio, so not forgetfulness. So not to forget. If we do not forget, we remember. Then we can be present, we can be mindful. Different teachers throughout the ages have different interpretations of sati, of mindfulness. And I have collected a number of explanations from different teachers um, 
different explanations of sati in regard to the mindful uh, to the meditation practice and each of these definitions or explanations of sati highlight one aspect of sati i will start with munindra munindra was indian and he went to Burma, practiced with Mahasi Sayadaw, and after he went back to India and then started to teach there. And many of the first Westerners who then brought back Vipassana meditation to the West had practiced with Munindra, people like Joseph Goldstein or Sharon Salzberg. So Munindra he has said, because of its chief characteristic is not floating away, sati stays with an object. And for Munindra, sati, mindfulness, was not some sort of mystical state, but it was a mundane act that anyone could and should do in any moment. <coughs> Very often he emphasized this point to his students. So he would say, everything is meditation in this practice, <coughs> even while eating, drinking, dressing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. Whatever you are doing, everything should be done mindfully, dynamically, with totality, completeness, and thoroughness. Then it becomes meditation. Then it becomes meaningful, purposeful. It is not thinking, but experiencing from moment to moment living from moment to moment without clinging, without condemning, without judging, without evaluation, without comparing, without selecting, or without criticizing. Then we have Bhikkhu Bodhi, the American monk, who has done a great job in translating the suttas into English. So he said, the word sati derives from a root meaning to remember, but as a mental factor it means presence of mind, attentiveness to the present rather than the faculty of memory regarding the past. Then we have Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, a Thai monk, very well known and respected. 
passed away some <coughs> 20 years ago. He said, Sati is the vehicle or transport for Panya, wisdom. Without Sati, wisdom cannot be developed. And another Thai master, which is Achan Li Lamadaro, he passed away 55 years ago. It's easy to just see how long it was, how long ago it was, because he passed away when I was born. And I easily know how old I am. <laughs> Although sometimes I have to reflect. <laughs> so anyway, Achan Li Damadaro, he said, everyone has some degree of mindfulness. The ordinary business of life driving a car, baking bread, and so on, requires that you are mindful or attentive to the present moment to some extent. But this usually alternates each minute with long lapses of forgetfulness. A person who has no mindfulness at all is mad, completely scattered, and out of contact. Then we have Asen Goenka, whom I mentioned in the morning, he who brought a form of Vipassana meditation to India, and from there it spread to the West. He passed away three years ago. And he said, Sati means awareness. The witnessing of every reality pertaining to mind and matter. Then we have an explanation from Bhante Gunaratna, the Sri Lankan monk who lives in the United States, very well known and respected. And he says, Sati reflects only what is presently happening and exactly the way it is happening. There are no biases. Mindfulness is non-judgmental observation. And then Mahasi Sayadaw, the Burmese monk, who was very instrumental of bringing mindfulness meditation into everybody's attention, making it possible for lay people to practice. That's the picture there on the altar. He said, through concentrated attention or mindfulness, the yogi knows how to distinguish each bodily and mental process, knowing the rising movement is one process, the knowing of it is another, 
The falling is one process and the knowing of it is another. The yogi realizes that each act of knowing has the nature of going toward an object. Then a definition of Sylvia Borstein, an American Vipassana teacher. Mindfulness. It's a relaxed, non-clinging, non-aversive awareness of present experience. You could think of it as a natural capacity that, like any other skill, requires developing. So sati is a natural capacity that needs to be further developed. And Joseph Goldstein, whom I've already mentioned, saying, mindfulness is that quality of attention which notices without choosing, without preference. It is a choiceless awareness that, like the sun, shines on all things equally. And the last quote, description of mindfulness is from Jack Cornfield, another American meditation teacher. He says, in the development of wisdom, one quality of mind above all others is the key to practice. This quality is mindfulness, attention, or self-recollection. So, as a summary, what is mindfulness? It's a key quality of the mind in the development of wisdom, in the development of the path <coughs> um, to complete liberation. So, sati is the vehicle for panya. Without mindfulness, wisdom cannot be developed. Then, mindfulness sati, it's not choosing the object, it's without preference. It's a choiceless awareness in the sense that it's not us to make the choice which object to take, but as I explained in the morning, the most distinct object, the experience in the foreground, becomes the object of our meditation. And it's a non-judgmental observation. Sati as a natural capacity that requires development Everybody has some degree of mindfulness. Or sati as witnessing of every reality pertaining to mind and matter. Or sati, mindfulness as a presence of mind.
or an attentiveness to the present. In the Abhidhamma teaching, all the different mental states or mental factors are minutely described and they are described in regard to their characteristic, to their function, to their manifestation and to their proximate cause. One book belonging to the Abhidhamma teaching is called the Abhidhammata Sangaha. It's like a primer that the novices have to learn to then go into deeper uh, studies of the Abhidhamma teaching. And so there, in this Abhidhammata Sangaha, this is how Sati is described. And this has also been translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So, mindfulness sati, it has the characteristic of not wobbling, which means that it is not floating away from the object. And um, an illustration that is used is like if you um, take a stone and throw it into a pond, the stone will sink to the bottom of the pond and just rests there. That's like sati, not wobbling, not floating away. But when there is no mindfulness, when sati is not present, it's like taking a dried hollow gourd which you throw in the pond. It will stay on the surface of the water and with the waves and the wind it will float here, it will float there. So it will wobble, not stay uh, still. Or Saito Upandita, he used to uh, talk of satinins to plunge into the object. <laughs> then the function of mindfulness. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. So this non-forgetfulness, so not to be forgetful, is like mm, a tennis player. A tennis player needs to be constantly aware of where the tennis ball is, so that he can uh, hit it. If he's forgetful, and looks out into who is there watching my tennis match, <laughs> he will miss tennis ball. Then in regard to its manifestation, it is manifested as guardianship. So mindfulness sati is a guardian against the kilesas the defilements. So with mindfulness, with presence of mind, one can be protected from the attacks of the kilesas. And if the defilements 
still arise, then with mindfulness they can be caught early on and so one can prevent a fire from spreading, like to prevent a bushfire from spreading when it can be extinguished early on, so the damage is much less. <coughs> and then the proximate cause of mindfulness. Its proximate cause is strong perception or the four foundations of mindfulness. So these establishments of mindfulness or fields of awareness again um, become approximate cause for uh, mindfulness or just strong perception, perceiving um, experience or the objects. So with all the different quotes and explanations that I read from these different teachers and people, we see that it is not so easy to, to describe mindfulness with all its different aspects and uh, small nuances. So to talk about it is not so easy However, when we practice, when we practice it, then it's more easy to understand or to know what mindfulness is and what it is not. It's a little bit like if we want to describe what an orange looks like and tastes like to somebody who has never seen or eaten an orange. So how would you describe this fruit? Like the form and the, the color and the texture and then describe how it tastes. But if you give this orange to that person, then looking at it and eating it, the per person will unmistakably know how an orange looks like and what it tastes like. Then there's no more doubt about it. And this example of an orange and what is an orange, there's a funny incident. Some students of Kalu Rinpoche, a well-known Tibetan teacher, who had been teaching in the West, they wanted him to meet with a Zen master. And they thought that would be an interesting uh, meeting, the two of them, two big masters in their uh, traditions. So probably very interesting what they uh, would say to each other or Dhamma discussion that would evolve. And so they brought them together uh, into a room and then the Zen master in his Zen-like manner took an orange out of the plate which was on the table, took it 
held it in front of Carlo Rinpoche and went, what is this? And Carlo Rinpoche had an interpreter, translator, who then translated for him. And Carlo Rinpoche went back to his translator, huh? what do you mean? And he tried to say, yeah. He asks you, what is this? And Carlo Rinpoche, but, huh, huh? couldn't understand. Finally, Carlo Rinpoche says to his translator, to translate it to the Zen master, don't they have oranges in their country? (laughs) 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 So this morning when I gave the instructions for the Vipassana meditation practice, I said that we need to be mindful of everything, to be mindful of all the different experiences that take place in our body, in our mind, or in our heart and mind. So no experience is outside the range of our practice. No experience is outside the range of sati or mindfulness. And so the totality of our experience can be divided into different groups. And the Buddha made four groups which then he called the Satipatthanas, so the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four establishments of mindfulness, the four abidings of mindfulness. And these four Satipatthanas, as they are explained in the Satipatthana Sutta, they are, and you probably know them, first one is Kaya Nupasana Satipatthana, meaning mindfulness of bodily phenomena, mindfulness of matter, mindfulness of physical phenomena. Then the second foundation is Vedana Nupasana Satipatthana, mindfulness of feelings, or I would say better, mindfulness of feeling tones, because it's not feeling as we use it in everyday language, I feel cold, I feel happy, I feel sad, and so on, but it's this special feeling tone which comes with every experience that is referred to by Vedana. I will talk more about this. in this retreat. Then the third foundation is Chitta Nupasana Satipatthana, the mindfulness of states of mind. And the fourth one is Dhamma Nupasana Satipatthana, mindfulness of Dhammas or mindfulness of mind objects. 
And the Buddha simply devised these four groups of foundations or four foundations in order to train the mind. In order to train the mind in such a way that we can very clearly see the true nature of these different groups of experience. So that we can very clearly see the true nature of matter, of physical phenomena pertaining to our body. That we can very clearly see and understand the true nature of the Vedanas, the feeling tones. And likewise, that we can very clearly see and understand the true nature of the states of mind and objects of mind. And in regard to clearly see the true nature of all these different experiences, mindfulness plays a key role. It's a key factor. And it needs to be sustained, it needs to be unbroken, it needs to be constant for a certain period of time. In order that mindfulness becomes really sharp and penetrating, we need to develop it over a certain time. So it needs to be constant, unbroken. It's like if we want to boil water, and if we turn the kettle on, but then turn it off after a few moments, and then we wait, and then we turn it on again for a few moments, and we turn it off again. Then after a while we go again, turn it on for some seconds, and turn it off again. So in this way, the water will never come to a boil. And likewise, if mindfulness is just present sporadically, here a few moments, there a few seconds, it will not be... Um, reach the strength that it needs to really uh, be penetrating and clearly seeing what is there. As I said, mindfulness plays a key role in the development of wisdom, but other factors are needed as well. And as I've already pointed out, Samadhi, one-pointedness of mind, is another important factor. In the practice of Vipassana meditation, we develop concentration hand-in-hand hand with the mindfulness. So it gradually also becomes stronger. And when mindfulness and concentration become stronger, more powerful, they act like a magnifying glass or like a microscope. So then we see things in much greater detail. And so we come to see more clearly what is actually there. Like in the beginning, let's say, when we are mindful of pain, we just may perceive the pain 
as a chunk of pain that is somehow painful, unpleasant. But then, with mindfulness and concentration getting better and stronger, we see that this thing we call pain is actually not just one solid chunk of pain, but it's kind of very loose and alive. It's these pulsations of painful uh, points or just little um, pixels of pain that come and go and come and go and grow stronger and less strong and so on. So then the pain kind of disintegrates into smaller constituents. So that's possible to see in this way with the help of stronger mindfulness and concentration. Or in the walking meditation, initially when we observe the movement of a foot, like we just know yeah, this movement with the right foot is kind of one smooth movement from, let's say, A to B, from the time I lift the foot until I place it down to the ground. So, on a conventional level, we perceive movement as something smooth from here to here, an unbroken kind of smooth movement. But then, when mindfulness and concentration develop, become stronger, then gradually and we come to see that this so-called smooth movement from A to B is not really smooth at all. It's not just one movement that has the beginning at A and the end at B, but it becomes kind of rugged and then falls apart and it's just little chunks of movement one after the other. So then we we come to see more clearly the nature of movement, namely being a series of tiny little movements that follow each other in uh, rapid succession. It's only the speed that makes it look like a smooth, unbroken movement from A to B. So these are just two small examples of how conventional reality then breaks apart and in meditation uh, we gradually get to the absolute level of seeing reality, of seeing how things really are, or to see things in their true nature. So the development of mindfulness is not simply for the sake of being mindful. But in the context of the Buddha's teaching, mindfulness is in the service of gaining insight and understanding. It's in the service of wisdom, in the service of liberating wisdom. So to see things as they truly are, also coming to see um, the dukkha nature of things, and to understand that there is a way out 
of dukkha. So there is a way to become completely liberated. So mindfulness is not just a goal in itself. It's not that we just are mindful uh, to be mindful. Otherwise, we would become what they call a Californian yogi, using mindfulness to lead a life with a bit less stress, to go through life a bit more easefully, be easygoing. But if you want to live a life with a little bit less stress and a bit more ease and smooth and easygoing, there are many more um, approaches or therapies that could provide this. You know, you could write poems or do Tai Chi or uh, just sit out in nature and so on. Now I want to highlight one more thing. So in mentioning these four foundations of mindfulness, I said the first one is Kaya Nupasana Satipatthana. And Satipatthana means foundation of mindfulness. And then the word Kaya Nupasana, that's also a compound. Kaya is one part, Anupasana is the other part. Kaya uh, means body or materiality. Then Anupasana is put together by, or it's, it consists of Anu, Pasana. When Kaya Nupasana is made into one word, the A of Kaya and the A of Anupasana, they melt together and so it's Kaya Nupasana. So Kaya Nupasana, but the Nupasana is actually Anupasana. Pasana, as I explained in the morning, referring to the word Vipassana, means seeing, clearly seeing. And Anu, this has to do with repetition or something that is repetitive. <laughs> And so, having this word anupasana, uh, this means a repeated seeing or a repeated observing of the object. In the case of kaya anupasana, a repeated seeing, observing of the body or physical phenomenon. So it's not enough if you only look 
clearly at one object one time. We need to look at it, we need to be mindful of it repeatedly, again and again and again. And taking this into account, Bhikkhu Bodhi then describes mindfulness in this way. So sati is part of a process that involves a close, repetitive observation of the object. So a close and repetitive observation, mindfulness of the object. So, Tobabi, enough words around mindfulness. The Buddha was a pragmatic. He was never really interested of setting up a nice philosophy or of setting up a nice theory. He just wanted people to become free from dukkha, to become free from all forms of suffering and distress, and he wanted to them uh, he wanted them to attain the unshakable peace of mind he, the Buddha, had attained. And I want to close the talk with a quote from Mahasi Sayadaw highlighting the power and role of mindfulness in the whole process of purification. And afterwards, we will sit quietly for some moments. Every moment of mindfulness is a gradual destruction of latent defilements. It is somewhat like cutting away wood with a small axe, every stroke helping to get rid of small pieces of the unwanted wood. Thank you for your presence and attentiveness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.